before I before I would begin, I always want to say I welcome your feedback. That's one of the reasons that I place my email address in my Zoom name. Or if you have questions that are better suited for a one-on-one -on -one exchange, you're welcome to contact me. Yeah, thank you all so much for coming. Um, by no means do you have to do this, but if you're in a place where you can turn your video on and you feel comfortable, just even for a second, to uh, sort of share your face for a moment with the group and then feel free to turn your video back off. I know there's a lot of Zoom happening these days, but it can really help us to form the group and to see each other for a moment. Thank you so much. I don't know if you, any of you saw the headlines today. It's six, it's June 15th. I saw in more than one newspaper, New York opens, California opens. Some of you see that? I got an alert this morning. It said it's official. Um, I think I'll, um, we, we, we know well that means our uh, some of our guidelines for living are, are changing. Not everyone is so fortunate to be in that situation. It's important to acknowledge, I think. And seeing the headlines, like national news, it made me wonder for how many of us does today indicate a, some significant change? I don't know about for you, it's been pretty, pretty um, gradual for, for me. A related question, what is it that we're, what is it that you're awaiting? Is there anything that you're awaiting? Ah, oh, yes, now, now this is, this is available, or soon this will be available. I think it's easy to interpret this, um, this date, the news, the energy, the buzz as pretty auspicious. May it be so. So I, um, I live, in tr live and train in San Francisco. So I'm, I'm feeling, the, feeling the buzz of the changes. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces and some new ones. And I wanna just briefly introduce myself. I'm, as I said, my name is Kodo. I train as a priest at City Center at San Francisco Zen Center, and I'm also a teacher trainee in the Insight tradition, uh, under the guidance of Gil Fransdahl and and Andrea Fela. Um, and I, to say something about that, I I really like to select and interpret teachings that resonate in both traditions. Uh, I like to um, particular particularly find those teachings that. Um, discuss and unfold the Buddha Dharma in terms of training, uh, in terms of the idea of, of uh, how the Dharma matures us. So my, my plan for um, this topic, well, I do, I do have plenty of notes. Part of the plan is inspired by the material and it's to meet you 
in the spirit of Zazen, in the spirit of what's arising with that sort of heart and that sort of mind. We'll see what becomes of that. The, the medium, the topic will be this ancient poem from the early roots of the Buddhist tradition. And the poem is called, or it's translated as An Auspicious Day. For those following along at home, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, the Middle Link Discourses. So in my understanding, this poem is pretty important to the early Buddhist tradition. It's uh, four short stanzas, pretty simple. And its antiquity is attested to because it's not only, it's not only in, the, in the canon once, but it's also, it's, not, it's been repeated three more times and commented on within this ancient literature itself. So if it's old enough to be commented on in, in this very, very old collection. So an auspicious day. A word about the title. Um, in the spirit of inquiry, the, the, the word that really caught my attention right off the bat is auspicious. And what can that reveal in terms of our relationship to experience? As that's where the Dharma happens. Auspicious. Very interesting to me to think about how do we recognize a moment as auspicious? How, how do we know? Uh, what in our experience indicates to us that this, this is an auspicious sign? Um, there may be a, a cultural inference, like a rainbow. You see a rainbow, like, ah, oh, yes, good luck. Rainbow means good luck. Um, But I'm, I'm even more interested in what is the, what's the cue from outside and inside that tells us this, is, this foretells beneficial things around the way. And think about it, if it's something external, is it uh, regarding the rainbow, is it the red or the green? Is it the violet or is it the shape? Or is it something we impute? Even the, even the notion of externality, that function of perception that tells us oh, there's a rainbow out there and it's perceived as exterior as opposed to interior. Or is there some internal cue? Is there something that touches us and tells our heart in, these, in those moments, ah, auspicious, good things are coming. How do we know? So there's the rainbow instance, and then there are some images from, from the Buddhist tradition that um, maybe some signposts or hints or something. Things that are regarded as auspicious in the tradition, if you think about the story of when, when, the, Buddha was, um, when the Buddha was awakened and the whole earth shook, or the last time the Buddha laid down before passing away. And not only the two solid trees above him, but divine flowers are said to have bloomed and fallen over the body. So to my mind, if we're willing to take those, 
figuratively and ask the question, what do those, what do those images tell us about a beneficent mind, a skillful mind, or a mind that's turned or turning the beauty of presence and meditation. I wonder, meditation at its best, if its flowers fall. So reflecting on this, Seems like, um, seems like one doorway into our experience. To take this just one step further, the notion of auspicious to me, one of the distinguishing marks is that it generates confidence. It generates faith. Now I'm confident. Now I'm confident come what may. And this sort of the confidence in the Dharma is that linking condition that provides and propels us on a pathway from suffering toward freedom. An auspicious day. So to, to set the scene for the poem just a little bit, um, to provide a sense of, um, what would it have been like to enter into this teaching in the way that it was originally given, as far as we can guess? I uh, would encourage you to imagine as we go along here. And feel free to close your eyes if you if that's uh, preferable. So you've arisen early and you're doing walking meditation before dawn outdoors. And the hut where you stay is situated among others in your Buddhist community that's practicing alongside the Buddha. You're doing this on land that was given for this purpose. Perhaps you know that this land was given and the huts constructed by a banker in ancient Sabati named Anatta Pindika. What you wear is a robe that's been given to you. It's a gift. And your hut has been gifted to you. You live in a field of giving. So you've arisen early, walking meditation in the black night, and then at the proper time, you, you further dress in your formal robes. You line up single file with the other monastics. And mindful of each step, holding your bowls, you set out to the town of Savati for alms for your day's food. In the village, the villagers see the single file line of noble postures. Smiling, kind regard, the lines approach. And then you pause, you uncover your bowl, and the villager takes a wholehearted gift of a pinch of rice 
and places it in your bowl. Gives you your livelihood for the day. Your means, your fuel for practice. You return to the monastery, you eat in the formal way, and when you're finished, wash your bowl, and then you find a place for the day's meditation. The root of a tree where you sit and you walk. At some point during the day, the whole group of monastics assembles, and you hear this familiar voice. The voice of the Buddha. And he says, Monastics, yes, Bhante. And then the Buddha said this. I will teach you the verse and the analysis of an auspicious day. Listen and play, pay close attention. I will speak. Yes, Bhante. And the verses begin. Don't chase the past or long for the future. The past is left behind. The future is not yet reached. Right where it is, have insight into whatever phenomena is present. not faltering and not agitated. By knowing it, one develops the mind. So stop halfway and talk a bit. Don't chase the past long for the future. Immediately enters into this admonition for training, of training in a sense of timelessness. And I also, I wanna bring this into connection with another notion that actually the experience or the sensation of long felt time can actually bode very well, can have an auspicious feeling. And in terms of Buddhist training, this feeling of deep time to me connects us with a felt, a felt sense of an ancient tradition, that we're connected to an ancient tradition and can have the confidence giving um, support of having the ancients, all of the ancients at our back, all there to support our practice. It can give this practice an, uh, an ancient sense of history that comes right into connection with us. And what happens to that sense of ancient time when the perceptions of past and future are dropped? And the past is left behind, the future is not yet reached, and enter into some sort of imperturbable now. Dongshan said its fineness fits into spacelessness. I'll add that its broadness leaves no trace. 
both these senses of long time and this utter timelessness and beauty of the present. Maybe auspicious signs, no? About present attention, well-known adage by Dogen, the founder of Soto in Japan. Here the way unfolds. In connection with this poem, I'll say now, now the way unfolds. Just this, as this poem goes, right where it is, have insight into whatever phenomena is present, not faltering, not agitated. By knowing it, one develops the mind. I find this notion, notion both comforting and clarifying. That in the context of the present moment, in terms of our practice, whatever is arising, that is what is arising. What's here and now couldn't be otherwise. And simplifying in that there's a, there's a teacher who very succinctly puts this, that there are only ever six things going on. Sights at the eye, sounds at the ear, aromas at the nose, tastes at the tongue, felt sense through the body, and mental contact. At its most simple, just these six things going on. Of course, we know there are all kinds of variety that can arise based on the, those uh, basic ingredients. But for our practice to know that the body is always present and simple, the simple request to know this steadily, continuously. So these six things always going on, these six gateways of sense experience, they're always happening now. So right where it is, have insight into whatever phenomenon is present. It's a simple idea, and I think it connects us to something profound. And I have the very strong confidence that one of the reasons that we, that we gather that each of us comes to things like this is we have some we have some felt experience of that the profundity of the profundity of now of course it's always changing always a flow and how can it be found i think it's one of the beauties of practice that every moment is conditioned it arises. Sustains or courses and then it passes away. And its influence, the influence of any given moment is conditioning the next. It's such a basic principle to Buddhist practice. Dependent on this that arises. 
And with such a simple practice to be present for what's here now, somehow that's an auspicious bending toward freedom. The third stanza picks up with some timely encouragement, encouraging us to practice, practice this simple, profound practice of presence while we can. So the, the Buddha continues, ardently do what should be done today. Who knows, death may come tomorrow. There is no bargaining with mortality and his great army. I confess the first many dozen times that I read this poem, I skipped over the, the third line in this stanza. There is no bargaining with mortality. I just didn't even register it. But something happened while, while reflecting on this poem these last weeks. That line really stood out to me. And I, I thought, how deeply do I know this to be true that I can't bargain with mortality? How long will I have to practice? I don't know. I don't know. I think what I most want to say about that is bargaining with mortality, it makes it seem like a fault to bargain with mortality. Maybe, we might hear it that way. This is a problem, shouldn't bargain with mortality. What real, a thought that arose that really, really piqued my interest was, how do we do our bargaining? Like, how do we try it? And that those attempts, those strategies and those tactics, that's where the practice happens. It's actually our, our strategies, when they become evident to us, when we see them clearly, that's our karma meeting the path. It's just trying to, that's, a, that's equivalent to us sitting in meditation and finding that our mind has wandered away. What's the attachment that led me here? And what's the influence? Where's the, where's the clinging? Where's the energy in this? In a similar way, how am I bargaining? Like really? Well, something deep inside me knows that my bargaining won't be effective forever. So a question is why do we bother with these modes of perception considering mortality or why do we bother with the modes of presence? I think this is an invitation to investigate what our motivations are. Do we, do we practice these things out of tradition? 
do we do it because it's the right thing to do? Do we do it because we've seen it work for other people? Ah, he's he's got something I I want. Uh, she has a quality I really want to develop in myself. That may be so. One of the teachers at the Sin Center, first time they saw a ceremony, first time they saw the abbot at the time do a ceremony, had the thought, those feet can teach me how to sit zazen. That was their motivation. Maybe there was something of bodily freedom, felt sense of freedom, mental freedom. Or maybe our motivation is that we've, we've touched into this timeless now. Some of the profundity of simply being with our experience of these six senses, come and go, come and go. What motivates us? Ardently do what should be done today. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows? There's no bargaining with mortality in his great armor. It's right here we find the path. I find at times, in addition to the motivation for freedom, that I, that that is, is one of the primary things that motivates my own practice. Sometimes I just feel so much gratitude for the teachings having survived this long. And it's like, what can I possibly do to give back the gift of all this goodness that's come into my life? And come to find out it's not a, that's not a new idea. Um, practicing to return, return the gift, return the respect of the Buddha. Which led me to think of another story. So this is um, leading up to the Buddha's final passing away. And he's, he's on this long walk, traveling, maybe I've heard some 300 miles, maybe on foot, of course, returning to, trying, trying to return home to where he grew up uh, before he passes away and he realizes he's not gonna make it. He knows it's his time to die, he's 80. He's in a lot of pain. And he has his robe folded up in four and placed between these two beautiful mature trees in a grove on a hill. And he lays down on his right side for the last time. They call this the lion's posture. I love thinking of the Buddha as a lion. So in the way that it's put, then the Buddha lay down on his right side in the lion posture, placing one foot on the other, mindful and clearly aware. And those twin sal trees 
burst forth into, into an abundance of untimely blossoms, which fell upon the Buddha's body, sprinkling it and covering it in homage. There were more flowers. There was sandalwood powder. There was divine music from the skies. Quite a scene. End of the Buddha's life and still somehow something so beautiful and auspicious that bodes well for the future somehow brings together these ideas of mortality and beauty. Describing all this, he, the Buddha then says, never before has the Tathagata been so honored, revered, esteemed, worshiped, and adored. And yet, he says to his attendant, whatever practitioner, dwells practicing the Dharma. They honor the Tathagata, revere and esteem and pay him supreme homage. I don't know about you, but that puts a giant smile on my face. That the, my, my own practice, my own sincere practice of engaging with the present, taking up the instructions of the Buddha is a, is even more supreme of an offering than flowers falling upon the Buddha's body before he dies. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh. So encouraging. So in the final stanza of this poem, the Buddha says, whoever dwells or meditates, same word, whoever dwells thus ardently, active day and night is, says the peaceful sage, one who has an auspicious day. So having you, having spent the day in contemplation, gone to Savati for alms, heard the Buddha's teaching, bright-hearted, auspiciously bent toward freedom. So the poem once more. Don't chase the past or long for the future. The past is left behind. The future is not yet reached. Right where it is, have insight into whatever phenomenon is present not faltering and not agitated by knowing it, one develops the mind. Ardently do what should be done today. Who knows, death may come tomorrow. There's no bargaining with mortality and his great army. Whoever dwells thus ardent, active day and night is says the peaceful sage, one who has an auspicious day. So may it be that our contemplation of this ancient poem and our contemplation of the notion of auspicious just brings us more and more into a sensitivity into a recognition 
of the conditions that give rise to our practice. And may our study deepen. And may all beings everywhere benefit. Thank you very much.